After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of these just to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed that prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of the strong wind was blowing, and when they had rode three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that had remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to all mankind and for sending your son and having him endure the sinners that gathered around him and having suffered as the bread of life for such worthless souls as us. Thank you for seeking the lost. Thank you for wanting to gather up every crumb. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you will bless Tom as he speaks. And may our hearts be enriched from your word. And help us to go from this place filled with your spirit to do your work and to glorify you.
In Jesus' name, amen. I've listened to this passage in audio format probably 30 times this week, and I, I, uh, I realize I've watched too many Westerns. Because when you get to the part where it says, and they had rowed three or four miles, my brain says, no, had ridden, had ridden. The more I examine the teaching style of Jesus, the more I stand in humble awe. Jesus was master of the perfect setup. (laughs) And one of his favorite teaching tools was show and tell. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus does something extraordinary. And then having captured the full attention of both friend and foe, he then declares something extraordinary about himself and often points out things about his audience. If you want a great example of that, just look back at the last chapter, chapter 5, and consider how the healing of the crippled man at the beginning of the chapter is used by Jesus as the platform for all the amazing declarations that he makes about himself in the rest of that chapter. He uses that same teaching approach right here in chapter 6. Now over the centuries, we Christians have kind of devised a a shorthand for referring to certain stories and events in the biblical narrative. We talk about the parting of the Red Sea, David and Goliath, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walks on water. It becomes very easy to think of any of those individual events in isolation from the context in which we find them in the the text. But the greater lessons are easily missed when we don't look carefully at that broader context. That's definitely the case here in John 6. I don't believe it's possible for us to get the big picture lesson of chapter 6 unless we recognize that the whole 71-verse chapter is a brilliant show-and-tell on Jesus' part. Now, the chapter divisions were added much later, and they're not inspired, but this chapter is divided exactly right. The two miracles at the beginning of the chapter, popularly known as the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walks on water, are the setup, they're the setup for a hugely important truth that Jesus had determined to lay out for this multitude and for His disciples. And the real beneficiaries of that amazing truth by the time you get to the end of the chapter are His disciples. Now, at the risk of of maybe reducing too too greatly an incomparably profound and important truth, I want to do my best to summarize the essential lesson of this chapter. And and this lesson I, I want to have in our minds this week and next week. Here it is as I see it. Jesus came from heaven to earth not to improve our lives, but to be life to us. He came to replace these endlessly needy leaky body bags that we call life. With His life, He came to become to us the water that puts an end to all thirst. The food that never stops nourishing. 
He came to be to us the way, the truth, and the only life. He came from heaven to earth not to improve our lives, (laughs) but to be our life. He has to break us of the first in order to bring to us the second. He has to break us of our expectation that He came to make this miserable imitation of a life a better imitation so that He may replace the imitation with the real thing. That agenda of Jesus as He masterfully unwraps it before our eyes in this chapter turned a multitude of people who were following Jesus around into a very small group of people who were actually following Jesus. It turned a multitude of people who wanted Jesus to make their lives better into a very small group of people who recognized Jesus as life itself. And we won't get all the way to the end of that today because it's a long chapter. But we're going to see some amazing things. All the other Gospel accounts tell us that just before the events that are recorded here in John 6, the twelve disciples had returned to Jesus after having been sent out by Him into several towns and cities and towns to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand to heal many illnesses and diseases and to call all to repent. When they returned and reported to Jesus all that they had done and taught while they were on that mission, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. (laughs) That's a joke. I mean, it's in the text, but it's really funny because when they got to that place, it was neither lonely nor peaceful nor quiet. That, by the way, is a really good lesson for every Christ follower. I've quoted this before, but my brother Paul Lockie once said, you can't be a servant on your own schedule. Uh, That has stuck with me for about 20 years now. The miracle recorded in the first part of chapter 6 is one of the most well-known of all the miracles in the Bible. And it's the only miraculous sign of Jesus other than the resurrection, the greatest miracle, that is recorded in all four Gospels. So that should get our attention. Most of your Bibles have a heading for verses 1-15 through that says something like the feeding of the 5,000. That's a bunch of people. But that's not nearly as many people as Jesus fed on that mountainside on this particular day. (laughs) Matthew 14.21 says, And there were about 5,000 men who ate aside from women and children. See, only the adult males in the crowd were included in the number 5,000. And this was a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, but John makes a point to mention in verse 4 here that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So I believe most of that crowd was made up of Jews who were temporarily staying in Palestine for the great festival of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Jews came from Jeru- to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire for each of the three 
major annual festivals. And God had instructed them in the law of Moses that when they came, they were to bring their entire household, including their male and female servants. But the problem is that the city of Jerusalem couldn't even begin to accommodate all of those families. So, during the time that this celebration was going on, there were some wait states. There were some periods of time when there weren't specific events going on at the temple. And the people fanned out throughout Judea and Galilee. And that's who these people were, I believe, that were coming and and following Jesus around on, on this day. Uh, by the way, Jewish families didn't practice zero population growth. They tended to have a lot of kids. Jesus himself had four brothers and an unspecified number of sisters, plural. Probably more than a couple. I've heard many conservative preachers estimate the size of this crowd to be somewhere around 20,000. That would only be four total people for every one adult male. I think that's very, very conservative. I think 30,000 is conservative. No wonder John describes this in verse 5 as a great multitude. Why were all these people following Jesus around? Well, part of their motivation is presented in verse 2. John says it because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Even the disciples had been doing those kinds of miraculous healings while they were out visiting the cities. So people were following them back to where Jesus was. And he had gathered an amazing crowd. But he was about to give them another motivation for following him around. As usual, if you want to track what Jesus is actually doing, what his agenda is in a particular passage, it's very helpful to look at his interaction with the disciples. John says here that when Jesus asked Philip, where they were going to buy bread to feed all these people, he was baiting Philip. He was testing him. The passage says he, Jesus, knew what he was intending to do. Now, that certainly shouldn't surprise us. When was the first time that God asked a question for which he already knew the answer? Genesis 3. Adam, where are you? Like father... Like son. Philip replied that even half a year's wages wouldn't buy enough food for every person in that multitude to have even just a little. Then Andrew weighed in and said, well, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. By the way, barley loaves, that was the, that was the crummy bread. You ever had a barley loaf solid? I mean, your pure barley bread? It's not easy to eat. <laughs> Some people probably love it, but maybe if you put a lot of syrup on it, I don't know. He says, what are these for so many people? See, both of these disciples of Jesus were assessing the situation based on purely earthly criteria. And Jesus was deliberately smoking that out, right? It didn't even occur to these men, his 12 disciples, that... The, the one who had instantly turned 180 gallons of water into fine-aged wine at a wedding feast not too long before this might have a solution for this problem. At that point, Jesus 
had his disciples right where he wanted them. See, this need wasn't merely great. It was ridiculous. He instructed his disciples (laughs) to have all the people sit down just as if they were getting ready to eat. Other gospel accounts explain that the disciples seated them in groups of 50 and 100, which was a really good strategy when it, if you needed to parcel out a bunch of food to a very large crowd. But it, it sort of assumed that you had at least the equivalent of a train car load of food. But Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He gave thanks to His Father for His always perfect provision. And then John says that Jesus (laughs) distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. I loved how Jonathan emphasized that when he read the verse. And when they were filled, when their stomachs were full, Jesus said to His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. (laughs) So they gathered them up. And they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves and the fish. You see what happened here? Jesus turned a quantity of food that was ridiculously insufficient for the need into an excess of provision. A superabundant provision. Beloved, if you don't think of God as a superabundant provider... You have an unbiblical concept of God. But remember, signs are just pointers to something greater. So if this looked great, (laughs) this is just pointing to something greater. John calls it a sign. So why did Jesus do this? To what greater reality was He pointing? We'll get there shortly. In verses 14 and 15, John tells us how this multitude of very well-fed people then responded. They said, this is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. The other Gospels explain that some in that crowd thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. Some thought he had just been beheaded by Herod. And by the way, the disciples had just found that out before this event. Some thought that this, that, that Jesus was the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Brought back to earth. You remember he was taken up by chariots of fire several hundred years before this. And the, and by the way, the, the very last prophecy in the Old Testament, the last couple of verses of the Old Testament talks about Elijah coming back. And it says, and still others thought he was the prophet Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18. During Elijah's faithful ministry as a prophet prophet of Yahweh hundreds of years before this, God sent him at one point to minister to a widow in a town called Zarephath. She was a Gentile, a Sidonian woman. She was desperate for food because God had stopped all the rain throughout not just Israel, but all the surrounding area as a judgment against Israel and her rebellious king Ahab. Through Elijah, God took that woman's last handful of flour and a tiny remnant of oil and he multiplied that provision to miraculously give sustenance to that woman and to her son for as long as God held back the rain. 
the mostly Jewish multitude here in John 6 knew that what Jesus had just done was the kind of thing that God did through His faithful prophets. But they also knew (laughs) that the miracle they had just witnessed made God's provision for that widow through Elijah look like child's play. Verse 15 says that Jesus knew this crowd was about to take him by force to make him king. So he withdrew to a more solitary location. A thousand years earlier, David had been both king and prophet. And God had promised Israel through the prophet Isaiah that a descendant of David would come who would restore Israel's fortunes and would rule over his people and all the peoples of the world in perfect righteousness and justice. This crowd was ready to nudge that agenda forward. See, this was a king they could get behind. In 1928, the Republican Party published a circular, a campaign circular, and it said that if their candidate, Herbert Hoover, was elected, there would be a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. The year after that, the greatest catastrophe in the history of the U.S. economy happened and the country was plunged into the Great Depression. So much for all the chickens and cars. But it was a brilliant campaign promise. Brilliant. See, people have always loved the idea of having a ruler who could take care of them, who would guarantee their well-being, someone who could protect them from all their enemies while making their lives comfortable and pleasant and well provided for. And for people who want that kind of ruler, what could be better than a prophet slash king sent from God who just proved that He could not only heal every kind of illness and affliction, but He could miraculously fill the stomachs of tens of thousands of people starting with nothing but a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. If they were following Jesus around before, imagine how diligently they were going to follow Him around now. And that's just what they did. When they lost track of him, you can almost sense the panic. But Jesus was not interested in the kind of worshipers who would exalt him because he could heal their illnesses for a while and fill their stomachs for a while. He wasn't seeking consumers to be his inheritance. He was seeking what his father was seeking, what he told the Samaritan woman he was seeking in the earlier passage. He was seeking true worshipers who would worship God in spirit and in truth, who would recognize that the purpose of the miracles that Jesus did wasn't to create consumers of miracles. It was to identify Jesus as the only one worthy of their fear and their faith and their obedience. He was about to make that purpose very clear to them. But something else had to happen before this crowd got to hear from Jesus again on the other side of the the sea. And that something else is recorded in verses 16 to 21. According to Mark's Gospel, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side of the lake. 
assuming they were somewhere on the south shore of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus fed the multitude, and they were now heading for the north shore toward the area of Capernaum and Bethsaida, that was roughly an eight-mile row. And it was already dark when they set out. When the disciples were about halfway to their destination in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the wind became very fierce. And the boat was being battered by the waves, according to Matthew's account. Mark says the disciples were straining at the oars for the wind was against them. Mark chapter 6 says that at that point Jesus came to them walking on the sea and He intended to pass by them. See, Jesus didn't need a boat. But when they saw Him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw Him and were frightened. But immediately He spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. And they were greatly astonished. And listen to last verse 52, Mark 6. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. And their heart was hardened. Can you imagine that? They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Now if you have one of those Bibles that sets off the words of Jesus in red type, open it up and scan through John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21 real quickly and tell me which of those verses contains something that Jesus said. Verse 20. In the Greek, Jesus statement to the disciples in that verse consists of just two sentences and each of those sentences is just two words. I am. Fear not. I am. Fear not. It's hard to think of anything that will shuffle your deck as decisively as basing your life on those two amazingly simple sentences that Jesus still sets before every disciple of His. It seems to me there's just one more two-word command that fills out in the most concise form the worldview that God requires of those whom He calls to Himself. And that final two-word command is clearly implied in this text by what Jesus just got through doing on the mountainside and by what He was doing when He said those words to the disciples. He was standing in the middle of the Sea of Galilee having walked halfway across it. That other two-word command is, fear me. God says to mankind, I am... Fear not, fear me. In other words, because I am the great I am, I'm the only one worthy of your fear. I'm the only one worthy of any of your fear. Throughout the Bible, whenever a man catches even a tiny glimpse of the, of the glory of the one with whom we have to do, Every other fear is replaced by just one. 
Him. Jesus is that One. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Every wrongly placed fear vaporizes when we get who He actually is. And when we fix our attention on Him, which is what that passage this morning said, fixing your eyes on the author and perfecter of faith. If our Lord and Savior can take a meal that's barely big enough for one small family and turn it into a feast for tens of thousands of people without even breaking a sweat, how could we, whom He calls His inheritance, ever lack anything that we need for this life or for the life to come? How could that possibly be? If our Master is the one who can walk across a storm-tossed sea and instantly calm the wind and the waves without exercising anything but His will, how could we whom He calls His own ever be threatened by anything that we encounter in this life? By any created thing that He created. Does that make sense? See, when we get who He actually is, any notion that we could ever suffer lack disappears. Now some of you may be thinking, well, (laughs) I'd sure like to know what that feels like. That kind of freedom from fear and anxiety is so far removed from my experience that you might as well be talking about a parallel universe. Friends, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, the Savior of your eternal soul, then that response is perfectly understandable. But if that's your response, your fear is still misplaced. See, it's not starvation or drowning or credit debt or a bad marriage or cancer that should scare you. It's Jesus. That fear should drive you to your knees before Him. If you do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of your eternal soul, and you're still worried about threats to your well-being that come from created things, including people, make no mistake, that response is not perfectly understandable. It's not even reasonable. It sets aside everything that God the Father has clearly made known to us about Himself, about His Son, about His Spirit, about His power, about His promises, about His amazing love toward us whom He has called to be His. When Jesus stepped from the sea into that boat with His disciples that night, did He say to them, okay guys, I understand. It's all right that you were afraid of the storm. That you were afraid you were going to drown in the middle of this lake while I was over on the shore praying, oblivious to your problem. It's okay that you were quaking in your sandals when you thought a ghost was approaching your boat. It's okay that you were astonished that I could calm a storm that quickly. I understand you have to crawl before you walk. 
I'm sure you'll eventually figure out who you're dealing with here. I'll just wait. I'll just sit tight till you get it, and then, then we'll talk about your assignment. Does Jesus ever say things like that to his disciples when their faith is faltering? Not once. And he'll never say that to you. Not once. He says, I am. Fear not. Fear me. Now, don't get me wrong, God is amazingly forbearing toward us. He is mindful that we are but dust. But he never changes the assignment. The assignment is, I am, fear not, fear me. Only me. Not long ago, a dear brother who's had a whole lot of first-hand experience with life-threatening situations stood right where I'm standing now, and he challenged all of us to reckon with the simple reality that God never says to us, it's okay that you're afraid as long as your trust in me outweighs your fear of all that other stuff. Was that what God said to Israel when the Egyptian army was bearing down behind them and the only thing in front of them was a sea of water? No, it's not what God said. He said, fear not! And then listen, He said, stand still and see the salvation of I am which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. I am will fight for you while you keep silent. There in Exodus 14, God told and then He showed. Here in John 6 with the disciples, Jesus just finished showing. Now He tells. In effect, he says to the disciples, you saw what I did on the mountain? You see what I'm doing now? I am. Fear not. Fear only me. Then he threw in one more amazing miracle for them to ponder. They had been stranded by fierce winds in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, miles from the shore on either side. Now verse 21 says, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It means what it says. Bam! They were there! How do you respond to a God like this? You fear only Him. And when you connect the knowledge of His fearsome power and absolute sovereignty over every created thing together with the realization that He came from heaven to earth to save you, you trust only Him. You love only Him above all things. And you follow only Him. The last part of this morning's passage is John 6, verses 22-27. And it tells us what happened the next day when the multitude awakened from what had to be a wonderfully deep sleep that comes from a wonderfully full stomach they couldn't find Jesus or His disciples and they were panicked. Some of them have seen, had seen the disciples depart in a boat, but they, Jesus wasn't in that boat. 
as many as could fit into the available boats on the south side of the sea, crossed over, hoping to find Jesus on the other side, and sure enough, that's where he was. Puzzled about how he had gotten across without a boat, they said, Jesus, when did you get here? He doesn't bother answering that question. He has a different topic that he wants to address with them. That happens a lot. Is the same topic that he had in mind when he didn't answer another question a little earlier in this book. <laughs> when the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well asked him how it was that he, a Jewish man, was asking her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink, Jesus switched gears on her so fast it would have caused me whiplash. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, who it is, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A couple of verses later, Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water from the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The part of that passage about the Samaritan woman that, that pierces my heart every time I read it is in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 4. It says, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? She knew that it was. It was the hottest part of the day when that woman came to that well and she lived in a city that got deadly hot during the day. She came to get water to satisfy a very real physical need. But by the time she left that well, the thirst in her physical body was of so little importance to her that she left her water pot behind. She headed back to the city like a fire hose near to bursting. Not with the kind of water that you have to drink tens of thousands of times to stay alive, but with living water. A well of water springing up to eternal life that filled her to overflowing. She couldn't contain herself. As soon as she reached the city of Sukkar, she immediately started telling everyone who would listen about the man that she had just met. She didn't talk about the water. She talked about the source of living water. All her attention was on the, the owner and source of eternal life. I want to read the last two amazing verses of the passage. Verses 26 to 27 of John 6. But before I do, I'm going to read another passage written about 700 years before this one. God is saying the same thing in these two passages. Just in different words. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Ho! That means listen up. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That means it's free. 
Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? That is a question for the ages. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And then he says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Compare that with the last two verses of this passage. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. That means listen up. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on Him, the Father, even God, has set His seal. See, through Isaiah, God said to Israel, stop seeking things that cannot satisfy. Instead, come to Me that you may live. Now Jesus says to all mankind, stop going after food that cannot satisfy. Come to Me. Receive the food that endures to eternal life. You can only get it from Me because it's My life. Beloved, God cares about our physical needs, but that is not where our attention belongs. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Do we really think that the God who sent down manna from heaven and called forth water from, from a rock, a river of water from a rock every day for 40 years to provide for a couple of million people wandering in the desert somehow can't or won't take care of us? Their shoes didn't even wear out for 40 years, for goodness sake. Jesus did not come from heaven to earth to sustain our physical lives. He didn't come to give us food or water or protection from enemies or health or wealth. God was already meeting every daily need of His people long before Jesus came down from heaven. Jesus didn't come to improve our lives. He came to be our life. To any of you here who are still lost in the darkness of this cursed world, who have spent your life searching for sustenance and striving for safety, hoping that maybe whoever God is, He'll pitch in and give you some help with that, you might want to note that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
you will have every provision that God wants you to have every day of your life until this brief mortal life is over. Even the birds have that. What you don't have, what you desperately need, is the eternal life that Jesus alone gives to those who trust only in Him. Your eternal destiny depends on that faith in Him. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, I say finally, we wonder how it could be possible that the disciples, to quote Mark, had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. But the question you and I should be asking, beloved, is why have we gained so little insight from the crucified and resurrected Christ? Why do we spend so much of our lives thinking and acting as if our well-being was still up for grabs? How can you and I be so daft as to think that the God of superabundant provision is going to somehow fail to meet our measly little day-to-day needs when He has given us everlasting life? If you belong to Jesus Christ, He didn't save you so you could get through this earthly existence. He didn't save you so you could cope. He saved you to overcome for Him. God certainly wants His children to prayerfully depend on Him for every day's provision and protection until the day that He takes us to Himself. But whether we have much or little in this life, this earthly life, Our treasure is not here. Sometimes He'll give us little so that we'll figure that out. Sometimes He'll give us much so that we'll figure that out. He came to give us super abundant life, but that life will never consist of stuff. It will never consist of freedom from pain or suffering or tough relationships or financial hardship. That life that Jesus came from heaven to earth to give to us is His life. If those words seem confusing to you or elusive to you, I would urge you to humbly ask God to show you what they mean. He loves to show His people what those words mean. Dear Father, when we are like the disciples of Jesus, and we're just not getting it. Lord, we pray that You would humble us before You to see rightly. To open our eyes like You opened the eyes of Elisha's helper to see (laughs) that Your provision is never meager. It's always super abundant. When it feels otherwise to us, it's just because we're missing our Master's agenda to give us that which is life indeed. Every day. Teach us, Father, to see rightly. To see Him as He actually is. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.